Good evening. Very good evening. Good evening. Good evening, London. <laughs> no, we're in London. Oh, sorry. Good evening from London. Is that better? Uh, yes, perhaps a little too clipped. Yeah. Mind you, that brings me on to this article I've discovered. You too can get arms of steel like Penny Mordant. <laughs> Holding the sword of state need his toned biceps. <laughs> this is the Daily Telegraph, which has completely lost its fruit. Um, it's not the only <laughs> organ to have totally lost it. Over the Lord President of the Privy Council, Penny Mordant, 50, entrusted with carrying the sword of state during the coronation ceremony. The 350-year-old ceremonial blade. <laughs> Good second mention there. <laughs> I think the ceremonial blade, it's, it sounds like a rather randy guess. Exactly. <laughs> Weighs in at 3.5 cook. So this was pretty impressive. Certainly was. So how much in old money is uh, three kilograms? Uh, oh, now, hang on a sec. I think that must be. So is it, is it about a stone? I think it is about a stone. If you that think. is a lot. She was there for such a long time. Everybody else was busy with the orbs and the gowns and the oils and everything. And she was just standing. That's all she was doing. Standing. But um, the bad news, yeah. uh, if you are yourself uh, thinking of becoming Lord President of the Privy Council, you will need to do the following. Yeah. Squats <laughs> or standing and sitting down from a chair. Press-ups against a wall or on knees or full body. Bicep curls and tricep dips. The good news is you could have... Well, realistically, not 70 years, but you could have 15 years to get yourself in shape. Uh, you've also got to become an MP. Yeah. Uh, so you've got to pick a party that would be in position at the time of the next event. And you've got to be, it's all about timing. I'm just looking to see whether or not her outfit's already available on the very large It Will Deliver to Your Door uh, by 7pm this evening place what for a fancy dress party yeah or as i suggested on saturday recreate the coronation in the comfort of your own home yeah well, well i mean i'm sure that many 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 people <laughs> are thinking of doing exactly that recreating a tableau uh, in their own home and you can go as penny mordant i think you'd do that quite well actually. oh I... <laughs> let's do this for our summer party shall we yeah okay well I, well everyone will want to be her nobody's going to want to be the archbishop of canterbury are they <laughs> i don't know Somebody with uh, just absurdly egotistical powers might want to oh be. Gosh, I don't know anybody. Because he was in charge, wasn't he? He's a nice guy. I'm not being rude about his personality. No, not at all. Uh, as his position. I'd like to come as uh, Kate, the Princess of Wales. Yes, okay. Because I think that she did actually have the last fancy dress outfit from Amazon. It was quite gaudy, wasn't it? You didn't outfit? say any of this on Saturday when you were in no. full commentary mode. Because we were within earshot of the royal family. Oh, I see. Okay. Right. But didn't you think that all of the garter ones were quite gaudy? And They're Princess Anne's enormous bicorn. That's just... <laughs> um, I mean, Britain is a very special place. And I, I do think... I was, I, do you follow any, any, folly, follow any foreign newspapers on the Insta or any of the socials? Oh, frequently, don't yes, I? Yes, <laughs> I do look at like the Washington Times and things like that. And they, uh, the Washington Post, uh, uh, they obviously carried the coronation, but some of the comments underneath... <laughs> So, I mean, I, look, I loved Saturday and we had a lot of fun covering the event for Times Radio. But but in all honesty, the outside world is looking on partly in wonder, but also in app. What are you lot playing at? 
And they're right to ask Of us. course they are. they are. Of course they are. Yeah. But anyway, that doesn't mean that we weren't at times very moved. Well, but that was the extraordinary thing about the day. You could have a proper belly laugh at some of the stuff that was going down and then within five minutes be a little bit tearful. For me, it was the moment when the Prince of Wales, William, uh, had to do his uh, life and limb bowing to his dad and they had a little kiss on the cheek. And just in that moment, Jane, is a whole this is coming at you moment, isn't it? I just thought it was an extraordinary thing to witness. And I wouldn't want to, I mean, you know, there are lots of things that I wouldn't want my children to have to go through that I've been through myself. In the royal family, they have no choice. You see what happens when someone tries to opt out. I'll tell you what, though, what I wouldn't give to be crowned queen and for my sister to have to pay homage. (laughs) So... (laughs) Do you know what? I'm going to take your sister out for not even a drink. I'm going to take her out for a really, really nice long well, that's Sunday, that's Sunday you're lunch. That's the younger day. sister. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think that me and Alison would have a very nice time, quite a lot to discuss, actually. So I'll look forward to that. Can we just bring in our music correspondent, Alice? Because um, I'm very grateful to Alice. Um, I'm listening to you at the same time as writing, so apologies for my inarticulateness, she says. But actually, no problem with it. Don't worry. I get the classical church music, maybe not be to your taste and the gospel choir were fab but honestly it was wonderful and something we should all be so proud of the music was right at the forefront don't ignore it well i don't think we have actually Uh, give more of a shout out to the musicians says alice it's really quite incredible what they achieved Uh, combined choirs including finally girl choristers newly commissioned music including female composers that's absolutely true Uh, debbie wiseman for example several world-class conductors dotted around the abbey but somehow making the music sound together and beautifully expressive. If the horrendous cuts to music education continue, Alice says, I doubt the next coronation will be musically so world-class. Well, that would be a real shame, wouldn't it? What do you think the next coronation will be like? Uh, I don't think it'll be like the events of Saturday. I think it will necessarily be quite uh, pared down. I think. How pared down do you think well, they can go? Well, that's the difficulty, isn't it? Because if you're going to have a monarchy, then you may as well do it in a wholehearted fashion, I guess. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. I hope that wasn't a chill you picked up over the weekend. <laughs> Did we mention the weather? <laughs> so cold and wet. So you had a slightly better seat than me in terms oh, yeah, of right. the table. So I had the my back to the table. So when the wind howled through, it was mm. a proper, proper wind tunnel. And as a bit of a joke in the morning, I brought my dog walking coat because I just thought, well, it's, you know, there's no such thing as bad weather. There's only bad clothing. Mm. Uh, I'll take my very, very firmest, but not expecting to wear it in May. And uh, I couldn't have loved it more if I tried. I would have coronated that coat by the end of the day. It, it saved my bacon. Did a good job, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really did. Did you pay a lot for it? Uh, I did, actually. It's quite an investment. Yeah. Because I think with a dog-walking coat, you know, in terms of pay-per-use, Jane, uh, it's already less than a pound a day, mm. uh, and I intend to be wearing that in 30 years' time. Well, you put, I mean, I want to put a word in here for the late, a much-lamented uh, Topshop, who did a sort of fake barber about 15 years ago that wasn't particularly expensive, and which I bought, and it has been so useful. It's quite fitted, looks all right, isn't a barber cost hardly nothing like you'd pay for one of the original thing and it's it's super whatever the condition welcome to women talk coats (laughs)
this is a podcast. <laughs> it'll not it'll please someone somewhere, Jane. That's well, the worry. I just want to help. I know. Can I just talk a tiny bit about pets and money? I took Nance to the vet today to have her annual kennel cough vaccination. Stuff How like much? that. Well, I mean, it's whenever I walk into that vet, it's £139. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if I've gone to have a toenail trimmed off a cat. It's £139. Uh, and they gave her her annual health check and they said she's got a mild heart murmur. Uh, and uh, would I like to consider uh, having a heart scan, uh, which would come in at £1,100? Well, do you know what? That Because <laughs> I had exactly the same with my late cat mittens. I say late, of course, may have been a factor, but she was also diagnosed with a murmur, and they asked if I'd like a scan. And in the you feel terrible, but I just said no. <laughs> I, I have said no too, and it's not it's not a heart murmur, you know, that she can't kind of walk home if she might collapse. But it's yeah. just like, oh my god. Uh, so I'm sorry. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. But no, she's not having that. Um, just before we move on from, and I'm sorry to hear about oh, that. Is I mean, I know vets do a wonderful job, but that is a lot of money. It's a lot of money, and the problem is, Jane, that uh, I mean, she's ten. She's a greyhound. They tend to live between twelve and sixteen years. I would really love it if she made it to sixteen, but mm. she is ten already. But the awful thing is. I now f- will feel incredibly, incredibly guilty uh, if uh, she dies over the next couple of years because I'll think, if only I'd taken her for the scan. And I did say to the vet, well, what would the process be afterwards if she did have some kind of a heart complaint? Mm. And, of course, they can't tell you that, you know, until you've had the scan. Yeah. It's kind of like, oh, I don't want this to be happening to me. Well, try to think positive. Yes, but it's not helped. That put, your, put your pennies to good use. But the late mittens. Yes. <laughs> Well, she's look, she's listening in now and thinking that miserable bitch. If she'd paid for that bloody murmur, I'd still be here. Anyway, um, okay, this makes me feel terrible. Sorry, mittens. I'm just really spooked at the thought that Mittens is listening to this. Do you think she's done every episode? She's come with us from the old place? She did say she found it difficult keeping up with the sheer number of editions of Unfair. Right, um, Jennifer is in the beautiful autumnal east coast of Australia. She just has a few observations about the events of Saturday. I don't like Charles's finger, she says. Well, each to their own, Jennifer. Um, the Greek chant gave me goosebumps, she says. The military parade at the end was wonderful and the Navy manoeuvre shift from 12 abreast to 6 was worth the wait and she also says i would like to join the worshipful company of girdlers (laughs) wouldn't we all i think we all would and i speak as somebody who used to have to help i used to have to help my grandma into her girdle (laughs) it's given me what i i think you could probably let's put it this way i understand some of what old age means having grown up with my grandmother in the house and being exposed to well just the sheer uh just the body of work that there was that woman's underwear i tell you it's extraordinary anyway let's let's um, clear our heads and talk about something else well this comes in from sean uh, who says i finally caught up after binging your complete extensive informative and funny back catalogue uh, one thing i'd like to remark on is that you're both very reluctant to mention the bbc by name you call it the other place or where we used to work as auntie placed a fatwa on you is it the case that if you mention your previous employer you're abducted by highly trained intern and sent to a detention centre in Salford. (laughs) 
Well, I mean, it could happen, Sean. I think some of our colleagues uh, have met that same fate. I don't know why we don't mention it by now. Well, I think because we, we do. We, we do. do sometimes, but also I think there's just a feeling that we've left. So you don't want to give the place any more publicity. Uh, and Sean goes on to say, please continue your great work and good luck on Saturday. Well, thank you for that. And he signs himself off as Sean, heterosexual beta male, in brackets, menopause aware, Devon, P.S. <laughs> Menopause. <laughs> I get a badge. You get so many badges yeah, for that, Sean. Absolutely. Um, this is about. Well, it's headlined Croc Monsieur, but it's about a lot of other things. I've just been on the phone to my sister in Glasgow, both Sarah, who's telling us there she has a sister who lives in Glasgow and a phone. I've just been on the phone to my sister. <laughs> Would you like to come to the sister's lunch? Oh, this is going to be a great day out. <laughs> I've just been on the phone to my sister in Glasgow, who's a friend, she's far better than mine, to ask what croque-monsieur actually means. According to my big sister Jane, lovely name, a croque is a bite. She's not sure where the mister comes in, but did say that a croque madame has an egg added to the original ham and cheese male variety. I do not like croque madames. So sorry, talk me through that again. You're going to get ham and cheese with a fried egg in it. And croque means bite, and a croque madame is the toasted sandwich that's got an egg. Okay. Yeah. And so it's just, it means a man's a bite. Yeah, it's a man's bite, and then the lady has an egg. Because I don't know if you know, but in human biology, we're the ones with the eggs. Mm. And they're the ones with... Oof. I don't think I've ever had a croque madame. I had once and it won't be happening again. Also, um, you remember those French novels that we were told about last week with the titles that we weren't entirely sure we could translate them? Um, Fille Changer l'eau des fleurs is indeed about changing flower water. And this book tells the story of a woman who takes on a job in a cemetery, which might sound dismal, but actually is quite the opposite. That sounds interesting. And the other title, which we both liked, Les Oublets du Dimanche, um, refers to the elderly that nobody visits on Sundays. That's so sad. That's, that is sad. They are the forgotten ones. It is a really lovely book, says Sarah, about a young woman who works in a care home and the stories about the wonderful life that one of the residents had previously lived. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you for that. Uh, anyway, if you read one, you'll probably want to read them all, she says. I hope they translate well into English, as the author has a beautiful turn of phrase and makes so many beautiful observations about life. Thank you. Mm. Uh, can I just uh, read this one before we go to the big interview of the day? It's from Katrina, and it explains lots and lots of things uh, about uh, that translation of books and why we might not be reading very many things that aren't in English. Uh, we're spoilt for choice already, says Katrina, in one of her headings. There's an enormous international pool of literature written in English, including literary heavyweight countries such as the USA, Canada, Australia, India and South Africa. Uh, she then says we remain fairly monolingual culturally, and that's really true, isn't yeah. it? Apart from the odd craze such as Scandi Noir, we still mainly look to other English-speaking countries for films, TV, music and books, rather than to our nearest neighbours, as many other countries would do. And the third one I'd just never thought about, but of course it's true, translating a novel is expensive and slow, mm. unlike the rest of the translation industry, which works on economies of scale. Literary translation is a true labour of love, requiring someone who is not only a master translator, but a decent author in their own right. I hadn't thought about that, and that is a very good point. Yeah, and how weird must it be, uh, if you are bilingual, uh, to have your novel translated, I suppose, into the language that you're slightly weaker in, and to read it back and for it to not really be the true voice that you wrote it in? That would be strange, wouldn't it? 
Well, that really would be strange. I always think as well with people who... Um, do you ever really know somebody properly if you don't speak their language? Like, oh, that's and, a good question. And it's really difficult because obviously lots of people marry people who don't speak, don't speak their language and spend lifetimes together. But is it really... Because are all your nuances... You have to be really super good in a language for everything that you want to express to be crystal clear. Well, maybe that actually ends up being quite helpful. Do you think I could be enigmatic in another language? Well, I think there is a certain uh, frisson, isn't there, in not... If only there was, Fiona. I've waited years. <laughs> not ultimately understanding where everybody's coming from all the time. So I think that that might, you know, play to a strength sometimes. Now, this is um, totally uh, changing the subject, but I do think this is important and I suspect it isn't that uncommon. And it's about unwanted attention. We were talking last week, or was it the week before, about, frankly, slightly gropey members of the clergy that people had come up against, brushed up against, um, in every sense of that phrase, and they hadn't enjoyed it much. And we have the official advice is definitely complain about it, but make sure you go to the safeguarding person within the diocese. That's the gist of it. But this is from somebody who uh, works in a care home. I've been listening with interest to your discussion about unwanted male or female attention and wanted to share an experience that I had recently. I work as a carer visiting the elderly at home. Now, I went to see a client a couple of weeks ago, an 87-year-old man who lives with his wife. He's usually very quiet and often gets confused. On this occasion, he was very chatty and he put his arms around my neck and tried to kiss me while suggesting we could go off and amuse ourselves. I told him no and went outside so I could call my boss. My boss told me to write a report to, quotes, cover the company, and I've been taken off the man's rota. If this had happened with somebody my age or in a different situation, I would have reported it. As he's considered a harmless elderly man, it's been almost laughed off, with other colleagues recounting similar stories with different clients. Going into private homes to help people, it really has made me realise just how vulnerable carers are, but I'm not really sure what the answer is, and I'm not sure either. But I'm really glad that individual has told us about that, and I do, I'm pretty sure other people listening will have had similar experiences. Mm. I think carers are hugely undervalued, and I think, as that email illustrates, they are sometimes in quite vulnerable situations too. I would imagine more so than, I can't think of another... A profession which in which you could be more vulnerable actually because in hospital settings or other settings people there is are more scrutiny yeah. Yep. Yeah. and uh, there are more people and security and cameras and all kinds of things mm. anyway thank you for telling us about that um, Jane and Fee at times.radio I'm sorry it's happened because I, I imagine that was probably quite unsettling to put it mildly and just one final thought or not final if uh, listeners want to carry on emailing about it but the vicar who had moved past while placing hands on the hips of our original correspondent do you know what it's so worth reporting it just because it might not be predatory he's just doing something that he doesn't realize how he's making other people feel i still think there is a large contingent of mainly men out there who mm. don't realize what the reaction is to what they do we had a little bit of an incident on saturday at the coronation where we were both on the receiving end of what the purveyor of it would have thought to be light banter but you and I would absolutely regard it as sexism, mm. including a wink that I didn't ask for and I didn't want to receive. Did you get a wink? I did. <sighs> uh, but that, and um, I think, you know, that's a classic case of uh, the bloke just needing to be told 
don't do it and this is why. Mm. And not necessarily by us, because no, no. that would be tricky. Yeah, it would be. That would, else. Isn't that interesting? It would still be tricky, wouldn't it? Which is yeah. why we didn't say anything at the time. Yep. And we're both quite gobby, as regular listeners will know. Mm. Gabby Logan is a BBC sports presenter, former gymnast and brilliantly successful podcaster. There's very little she won't talk about too, which is very good news for anybody who's tearing up for an interview with her. Uh, she came on the programme this afternoon between three and five here on Times Radio to talk about her latest podcast, uh, which makes people talk about money. It's called The Family Money Show and guests in this series include Richard Curtis and Alistair Campbell and the whole US is to talk about how money affects people, what they do with it, and maybe also how much they have. And that was our first question to Gabby. Has anyone actually told her how much money they've got in the bank? Well, some people, you can find that out if you really want to, can't you? You go online and kind of, you know, you could even go to company's house and find out the, the kind of tax they're paying. But actually, that's not the point of it, really. It's about... Going back on their kind of, you know, their, their useful uh, kind of monetary experiences, whether that's from their parents, what they what they learned from their family growing up, if there was any uh, financial or monetary kind of knowledge, and then going through their lives, how they their approaches change. You find a lot of people don't really get serious about investments till it kind of is sometimes too late. <laughs> you know, pensions um, aren't very sexy, are they, when you're 22? Um, but some people are really um, risk averse and you know start doing things like that much earlier in life and you know they don't spend their money on fast cars and holidays and things so um we talk about those things but also people like richard curtis talk about um esg pensions which i'd never heard of before he's massively into that which is environmental social and governance based pensions and people talk about you know kind of um how they sometimes in alistair campbell's case just hand everything over to their wife so um, there's, there's, a, there's a wide range of experiences. That Was that a particularly short edition of the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could you please hand me over to Fiona? Um, yeah. No, because he talked a bit about busking in France and how, it, you know, because we talked to people about earning money. When you first start earning money, how that changes your, you know, your view of life, doesn't it? Because suddenly I see it with my teenagers. When they've got some money that's actually theirs, they've been given it for you know, Christmas or birthdays. How they spend it changes dramatically to when they're spending your money. <laughs> and we all remember that as well, that our first paycheck, you know, when you when you actually have to kind of start budgeting for yourself, you realise how expensive life is. Mm. And, you know, it gives you um, a little kind of um, an eye opener, I suppose, as you know, as a young person. I think it's really important that kids do have those lessons early on. I guess that's what we look into as well, how people's um, knowledge now affects how they talk to their kids about money and um, and and the whole platform II is for people who don't necessarily have that history of being brought up by parents who've invested in the stock market which I certainly didn't or you know my parents didn't talk to me about ISAs or SIPs or pensions my parents had a very gung-ho attitude to money <laughs> so um, I didn't really get any of that education. And so when you were much younger uh, you were a very successful gymnast weren't you in your teenage years did you imagine that you would pursue a professional sporting career? And how did you think that you would be able to make any money? <laughs> I, I never, ever expected to make any money out of gymnastics, that's for sure, because I was pre-National Lottery funding even for, for sports. So I got, I think, a sports aid grant a couple of times, which helped pay for a few train journeys. But it was never going to be a job or a career for me. It was always going to be something that I'd have to give up to get a job. And I, you know, I went to university and that's when it pretty much ended around that time. Um, so I, I loved sport and I wanted to, to do as much sport as I could. But 
there weren't many sports that were professional for women when I was a young girl. There, certainly there was no football, no rugby, no cricket. There was uh, golf and tennis, as far as I could see, that you could make a living from, and maybe some of the top, top athletes in the world. So I didn't even think sport was ever going to be a career for me. Mm. And it's funny, isn't it? Seb Coe is one of your guests on this mm. series, isn't he? And I thought he talked really brilliantly just about the way that we have, you know, the collective, we has really rather forgotten how tough it was for sports people uh, in our relative recent history, he was talking about Brendan Foster actually being a chemistry teacher all the way mm. through the time that we would have mm. seen him on the track. Yeah, and, and Seb himself was really at the vanguard, wasn't he? He talks about that, about you know how he was kind of one of the first people to, to become professional and make some money and how actually he had to keep his amateur status. The money had to go, any money he made had to go somewhere else. These are the days when, you know, the Olympics was really truly for, for um, amateur people, you know, amateur sports people. And, and he was uh, one of the first to kind of look at it as a career, actually, not just something that he did alongside other stuff that he was doing, in spite of the fact that he's a bit of a polymath, I think, in terms of the, the things he's done. You know, he's been in politics and obviously he's one of the most powerful people in global sport um, at the moment. So his I found his episode fascinating, actually. It took me right back to, you know, I was a kid watching him on those big Friday night athletics meets where he used to race against Steve Ovet and Steve Cram. And, um, and I forgot kind of how tough it must have been, actually, for them. You kind of now we watch the Olympics and we watch mm. big sporting events and those guys you know, who are racing are all professional athletes. It's a full-time job. You mentioned um, the women's sport and how it didn't really used to get taken seriously. And I think you've said in the past just how significant that Euro win for England's women was because oh. I, I can't remember enjoying a sporting occasion quite as much as that and honestly for days afterwards I was just sitting revisiting the highlights on YouTube um it was a there was a fairy tale element to all that yeah. wasn't there it was a magical summer and a magical tournament and everything about it kind of came together in just this perfect storm you know we had this blazing hot summer so we had these gorgeous you know backdrops to these amazing games where the, the stadiums were full you know you go to I, a couple of games that I did not involving the lionesses at places like Bramwell Lane you're coming out at 10 o'clock at night mm. and people are still wandering the streets talking about the football they've just seen and you know you, you don't even get that on a Saturday ordinarily you know in a man's game because you kind of want to get out there as quick as possible there's you know there's often a slight kind of atmosphere sometimes yeah. outside football games and it just was this Family, and it sounds cliche because you know people say all oh, the families go and watch the women's game, but there were so many families and groups of groups of women. Or you know, actually, the, one of the best sights I saw was at the New York Stadium, and it was France against Iceland, and there were four teenage boys just on their own. And I, this is when women's sport for me has really cut through because it doesn't just attract women. You know, it's it's attracting everybody because it's so entertaining, it's so brilliant, and. And then that final itself, which was, you know, the absolute icing on the cake, you know, to beat Germany in a final at Wembley, extra time. You couldn't get much more dramatic other than a penalty shootout, probably. <laughs> and, and it has, you know, it really has made an impact. You look at what happened last week with Arsenal playing in the Champions mm -hmm. League against Barcelona, selling out midweek in the Emirates. Yeah, they had 60,000 um, people there, didn't they? Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. There was a bit of a ding-dong, though, about the level of uh, advertising revenue and the rights being offered for women's football last week, though, wasn't there? Yeah, um, FIFA have had a few regions not wanting to pay what they value uh, the World Cup later this year at. We've, we've, the BBC and ITV are sharing uh, the tournament for the first time because we've previously had it to ourselves. But ITV now cover a lot of the um, women's game. They've taken the, the FA contract. So we'll be splitting the games. But other countries have 
said they're not prepared to pay what FIFA have said. And, you know, I, I don't know the absolute metrics of French television, for example, and why they, you know, what they value it on and what their kind of algorithms tell them about advertising. But that's disappointing, obviously. Um, and, you know, there's, there's often, even in the men's game, there's often disagreement between broadcasters and the rights holders as to what they think it's worth. But without it being on, you know, those platforms, it, it won't grow. So, you know, we, we are obviously showing, you know, half the matches, ITV is showing half the matches. You'll be able to see everything of the World Cup this summer between the two channels. Yeah. So we just need to really make sure that our enthusiasm for the game mm. uh, shines brightly across the world, don't we, so that they can keep those advertising revenues and those rights up. Can yeah, we... and it's the countries around the world that haven't yet quite kind of pushed the game through from the men's game. You know, there's... Um, there are a few countries in Africa that have women's um, teams that are quite strong, but we need to get more more women's teams going through the African nations who are now so strong in the men's game, you know, and reach the latter stages. Um, in South America, there's, you know, there's a bit more to be done. So, there, are, you know, Europe has been very strong and America has been very strong for a very long time at the Americas. So it's, you know, North America, it's getting it's getting the, the world kind of on a, on a level playing field. So you get more good teams. Can we just talk a little bit about you doing uh, what I suppose we ought to call men's match of the day? Um, how, how often do you do it? Because sometimes you're there and more often than not, it's that bloke, isn't it? Um, but you do it quite a bit. <laughs> um, yeah, I've done it more in previous seasons. This season, I've been so busy doing other things and a lot of rugby and, uh, and doing, um, I do a lot of things like the, the, you know, the Great North Run and the, the Marathon, the Great Manchester and things. So I try and only do one sport in a weekend because it's really hard to um, go from. I had some yeah. weekends this week, this year, where I've gone from rugby on a Saturday to football on a, um, a Sunday. Um, I, did, I did a match of the day a few weeks ago. I don't do loads of them because Gary, actually, I assume you're talking about him, mm. uh, he doesn't take that many off. That many scheduled off. You know where this is heading. I mean, I think a lot yeah. of people are interested in why Gary Lineker is allowed to behave in the way he is allowed to behave by the BBC when other people who have worked or do work for the BBC are kept on quite a tight leash. Is it impossible for you to talk about this, Gabby, or have you got a view? Well, I can only really talk about myself because I don't. I had Gary on my Midpoint podcast, actually, and it was uh, about three weeks before the the weekend, uh, the, uh, the Gary weekend happened. And, you know, he was talking about at that time having in talks with the BBC about things he'd said previously and how that was going to kind of uh, all pan out, not knowing that this was coming down the track or what, what happened was coming down the track. Um, he's got a lot of followers and, um, you know, what he says obviously cuts through across the media. And um, and I'm, you know, personally, I'm, I'm always quite careful about what I say online. Um, people have seen, you know, some of the terrible things that people like Gary have said to them on social media and, you know, how you deal with that and how you come back at people obviously can have a big impact, can't it? You know, if you're an express, if you're expressing an opinion, there is that whole kind of stick to what you know thing, which in his case, people perceive to be football, but he has interests and, um, and he's a very, um, you know, well-read and uh, very um, urbane man who doesn't just want to talk about yeah, football. Yeah, but I mean, you're quite urbane and you're quite well-read. Um, and there are just things that you wouldn't say because you know that I suspect that the BBC would have a right old go at you for doing it. Yeah, um, I, I, I'm, I suppose they've not come to speak to me, you know. So, so I must be at the moment towing kind of, you know, the right, the right line and for them not getting into anything. Any Is there anything you'd like to say now, Gabby, that's of a highly, <laughs> highly controversial nature on Times Radio? Feel free. <laughs> 
I don't feel like I, I have, you know, a plaster across my lips. I don't feel like I'm being, um, you know, kept, you know, something that I really want to say kept at bay. But I suppose if I had something really strong to say about something, I might discuss it with the people I work with first to see if it was um, appropriate to talk about. I do feel there should be a difference between sport and people who are presenting the news, because if you're presenting the news, you are talking directly about those stories. But I also understand that people who work for the BBC, you know, have a responsibility. And I think the results of the review that they're carrying out in the light of what happened on the Gary weekend should give us some more clarity on that. And I, I'm sorry if that sounds like a party line, but I think it will give us more clarity mm -hmm. because it felt to me like the department was kind of, you know, in two camps about this. And that means that there's, there is a disagreement about mm -hmm. what should and shouldn't be said. So um, let's find out what they say. And then I'll be back on to tell you exactly Good. what I think about. Oh, hey. Excellent. <laughs> Leveling up. That's, That's what booking. we want. Yeah. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Our guest this afternoon is the sports presenter, Gabby Logan. Uh, Gabby, your husband, Kenny, had uh, prostate cancer and serious surgery for it really quite recently, uh, something that both you and him have spoken really openly about. First of all, how is he? He's very well. Yes, he's very good. I think it, it takes um, a lot more than, I think, when you go through something like that. We both realised in the months afterwards that we... We approached it with a very kind of sportsman's-like approach. You know, we were kind of, right, OK, we're going to be, you know, he's going to be fit and well. He's going to attack this as if it's like a training exercise and he's going to uh, do everything he's supposed to do to, to come through it physically. But, of course, there's an emotional toll and, and a certain amount of trauma, actually, that you go through that you don't realise until the months later. So it, it's nearly a year now, and I think it really has taken a year to get him kind of back to where he wants to be. And, you know, there were kind of moments of self-doubt and you start, you know, kind of worrying about things, I think, to do with what intrinsically it is to be a man, you know, because obviously the prostate is so tied up with that. And uh, luckily for him, you know, he's he's come through it really well. But, you know, he's had a lot of people contact him through doing the podcast we did together about it who haven't had as easy a ride and people who are kind of worrying about it and going into it. So I think we we, we realise that we're very lucky that he found it when he did and that, um, that he's made a really good recovery. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't realise just how wide-ranging prostate cancer was until you know it's like one of those things until it affects you you, you know and you start reading about it um it, it's enormous isn't it in this country and obviously globally as well there are pockets of the world where it's uh, it seems to be worse than others but um kenny's uh, is a lucky man i think and he also seemed to be very keen gabby and you yourself to talk just in normal language as well about what prostate cancer can mean for mm. men and for the partners of men as well. And I did read a piece, it was in The Sun, and it was so full of all of those euphemistic phrases about in the bedroom and, you know, how it would affect him downstairs. And uh, I mean, I guess to draw it back to what you're trying to do with the podcast about money, you know, those phrases, they just make you cringe, don't they? Because we all know what you're trying to say. So why not actually just say it now? 
Yeah, I don't think I did an interview with the Sun. I can't remember saying those things. Well, it might have been picked up. I mean, heaven forbid, so, yeah, so, so a newspaper would pick up something. Saying, saying, yeah, so I mean, I may well have. I think they were their new um, euphemisms, not no, yours. No, absolutely. Yeah. Sorry, it was the Sun's euphemisms oh, okay, for it. No, yeah. oh, when right, right. when clearly your husband was actually trying to talk really honestly and yeah, normally, right. but the Sun was using those phrases, and I yeah, say that well, as somebody who's working in the same building as my colleagues on that <laughs> newspaper. Yeah, I, I um, yeah, no, I'm glad we cleared that up because I thought, gosh, Kenny couldn't have been more honest. <laughs> you know, when we did the podcast, he definitely didn't kind of talk in riddles or code. But I, um, I guess it's still uncomfortable for people to to have those direct conversations and um, and talk about what that actually means. And and actually, in midlife, generally, those things in long term relationships change, don't they? And um, and it can kind of draw your attention to that. I think. Um, I was talking to a friend the other day who's been married about the same amount of time as me, which is coming up to 22 years. And and we were saying how, you know, I think we see that, you know, the confidence of your partner can be affected by by that and kind of what it means to you can still be, you know, massively uh, loving and be really, you know, uh, demonstrative in terms of how much you still have, um, you know, great re- respect and, and affection and love for the person that you're with. But things might change in, in other areas. But um I suppose it kind of hits home when something like having your prostate removed means it's an immediate kind of change in the relationship. And um, as I say, he's he's been very lucky that things have, for him have have got back to pretty much close to normal. Uh, uh, this sounds really patronising, but I think he has been unusually brave, hasn't he? Because it isn't a quote normal for particularly for sportsmen to be just so upfront and honest about it all. Well, I think mean, that's why he wanted to do it, because what happened was, I don't know if you know, he, he found out that he had prostate cancer indirectly by listening to a podcast I'd done with Davina McCall, where she talked very candidly about the menopause. And he came in from a walk with the dog and said, so hang on a minute, if, if women's hormones drop off, what happens to men? And I said, oh, go see somebody. I got busy in my office. I said, well, men are fine. They just, you know, it goes, it all changes much more slowly. And you won't notice a massive hormonal drop off in the same way. But why don't you go and have a kind of men's health checkup? And he did. And um, and they said to him, your hormones are fine, mate, but your PSA is really not very good. It's a bit higher than it should be. We want to do some more investigations. And so he credits listening to that with um, what somebody might perceive to be a women's kind of episode, if you like, on a podcast mm. with sending him to because he had no symptoms otherwise. And that's what he found out about prostate cancer. that Often there can be no symptoms till it's too late. So once he said to me, look, once I'm through all of this and I feel like I've you know got to a point where um, I, I can. I'd like to talk about it because I feel like, as a, an ex-sports person, people perhaps wouldn't expect you to talk in those terms, and and that he knows he's got a very male audience, you know. And um, and actually, a lot of women have listened to the episode and handed it to their other halves, or they've given it to you know uncles or dads. And um, so it's been uh, for him. I think um, it makes it feel worthwhile, you know, that he he's gone through something that he can share his experience, and and he's he's a very open person anyway. So he didn't have any. Kind of trouble talking about it but once it was right to talk about it and also he like a lot of people you go through those experiences you want to give enormous credit to the people that have helped you you know his urologist Declan Cahill was so brilliant on the podcast and talked in also very candid terms about what it means and I think it's, it's quite hard to get consultants to, to to open up and talk in that way so he was brilliant and um, I hope it, it continues to help anybody who might have got a diagnosis of or wants to try and get somebody in their life to go and uh, you know kind of have a test if yeah. they think there might be something wrong. Gabby Logan there, a BBC sports presenter, former gymnast and brilliantly successful podcaster. Now, um, we are having an email special this week, aren't we? Oh, we are. So we probably ought to just make... So we are conscious... Con, con, 
If only I was conscious, I'm sounding like perhaps let's start the whole thing again. <laughs> we should say we've got an email special this week, which I think we're recording on Thursday lunchtime. So if you want to be part of that and you're very angry that your email hasn't been read out, you can either send it in again or you can send up a fresh thing because we'll have a bit of time and space to plough through everybody's emails. Not that we aren't reading them all. We are, honestly. But there just isn't the time, is there? No, not on this podcast so we won't be having a big guest we will just be talking through some of the emails and i would say actually that we've got some very very carefully uh, curated folders jane yes uh, into which different topics have gone and we'll look back through all of them so probably not necessary to send the same email again uh, but if you've got a new thing that you'd like for our consideration can you tell there how i very gently completely and utterly undermined what jane's just <laughs> you said. just have haven't you <laughs> no because i'm just thinking if 250 emails arrive overnight that makes it a bit hard work for our producers and hard work for us, which is the last thing I'd want. I'm not in work to work hard. <laughs> I come to get away from the, you know, roasting cauliflowers. Uh, so email specials. So if you've uh, been holding out in the hope that oh, yeah. we'll read your email and introduce your subject to our lovely listeners uh, and our wonderful off-air community, then uh, this is the week it could happen. And lots of people have drawn attention. As I think you mentioned also on Saturday, we were talking about when people don't hold hands with their parents or grandparents anymore. And there was that lovely moment at the uh, coronation when Jill Biden held her granddaughter's hand in public and a lot of people rather like that and mm. the granddaughter's got the rather unusual name Finnegan. Where's that from Jane? Finnegan Beginnegan. Um, I don't know I think the American. No no stop no 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 I think it's Isle of Wight. No. <laughs> It's Irish, isn't of it? Of course it's Irish. Oh, of course. oh I see, sorry. But enough with the Irish from the Biden family. Oh, yeah. Enough. Blimey, that was ridiculous. Sorry, anyway. Joe. Shuffle papers, go home. <laughs> Good night. Good night. You did it. Elite listener status for you for getting through another half hour or so of our whimsical ramblings, otherwise known as the hugely successful podcast Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. We miss the modesty class. <laughs> our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler, the podcast executive producer. It's a man. It's Henry Tribe. Yeah, he's an executive. Now, if you want even more, and let's face it, who wouldn't, then stick Times Radio on at three o'clock Monday until Thursday every week, and you can hear our take on the big news stories of the day, as well as a genuine interesting mix of brilliant and entertaining guests on all sorts of subjects. Thank you for bearing with us and we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. Mm -hmm.